0: Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting programme of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practising across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off so I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the 19th guest on the Liminal Gallery podcast is contemporary artist Eleanor McCorhey. Eleanor McCorhey's practice is an evolution of multifaceted installations, including painting, sculpture, video and sound. There is an important focus on material properties, capturing an earthbound quality to her work. Her work is developed with an interest in readings of religion and the function and structures of faith. Centering on the idea that faith offers the thought that one might be able to transcend the limitations of the physical and how agents of faith act as a channel for petition. Eleanor is a fellow sufferer of endometriosis, a condition where cells similar to the ones of the lining of the womb are found elsewhere in the body. For those that haven't come across this each month, these cells react in the same way to those in the womb, building up and then breaking down and bleeding. Unlike the cells in the womb that leave the body as a period, this blood has no way to escape. This can cause inflammation, extreme pain, and the formation of scar tissue, causing huge and varied complications. I saw Eleanor's work and resonated with it so much. Yet the way that she creates her work about her personal issues transcend the original meaning. Her exploration of womanhood and the politics of women's bodies speaks to a much wider audience and surpassing the pain, there is so much joy, beauty and hope that sings throughout her practice. Born in Dublin, Ireland, McCorhay studied at TU Dublin. Recent exhibitions include Forget Your Cares, Sow Your Wild Oats, Sin is a Wonderful Disease, a solo exhibition at Kevin Kavanagh Gallery, Dublin. Pay no attention to That Man Behind the Curtain, a two-person show with artist Lucy Sheridan at the Complex Dublin, and she has an upcoming solo show at RHA Ashford Gallery, Dublin in 2024. Eleanor McCaughey is a recipient of the Irish Arts Council Bursary 2021, the Temple Bar Project Award 2021, the Fingal County Council Bursary 2019 and the Next Generation Award 2018. Her work is represented in the OPW Arts Council Island Art Collection and private collections in Ireland, Europe, United States and Canada. Eleanor McCaughey, thank you so much for joining me today
1: thanks for having me <laughs> that was really nice a nice intro thanks
0: <laughs> yeah very welcome so my first question your practice is multifaceted as I said including installations painting, sculpture video and sound how did your practice begin and has it evolved over time collecting more strings to your bow or was it always so diverse
1: definitely wasn't as diverse well when I finished school first I studied animation. So that was like computer based. So I wasn't painting really. I was kind of doing a bit of drawing. And so I was on computers all the time. So I really needed to feel like I was creating something with my hands after a while of using the computer so I did night classes in oil painting so it was painting the figure yeah it was very systematic you know underpainting glazing learning how to mix skin tone and um, so it was a really intense course but it really gave me the tools I needed to start painting and experimenting with paint so Around that time I moved to Canada for a year actually and that's when I really started painting because I had these really nice neighbours Um, I moved into this really arty building (laughs) which I was really lucky that I just happened to move into this building and the neighbours across from me were tattoo artists and painters so they uh, knocked on our door and welcomed us to the building myself and my now husband keen walker and yeah from there like we would watch the bachelor Mm. (laughs) sit around and paint and yeah it was really cool and then next door to those guys there was a bunch of lads from montreal and they were graffiti artists. So Keen is also a graffiti artist. So he would go out and they would illegally paint trains <laughs> and, you know, sit around and draw and paint. And, you know, we had our regular jobs as well. But that's that's really when I got into painting in a big way. Um, I used to paint in school, I suppose, but that was just, you know, secondary art class kind of thing so when I came back from Canada I decided I'd go back to college so I went back to college when I was 29 as a mature student and I studied fine art and yeah I really didn't have a clue (laughs) I didn't have a clue about the art world at all like when I think about it now when I came back from Canada I was painting these really, really weird paintings that are actually kind of similar to my paintings now in in ways. They were really imaginative and the figure was in them. Yeah. So I've kind of come full circle. But I remember I was looking for somewhere to show these works and I didn't really know how galleries work. So I Googled. (laughs) a to z of galleries in dublin and then the first one came up was this place adams but they were an auction house and i applied there and they were like are you sure you want to auction work because if they don't sell you're just starting you know yeah i just went ahead anyway and they sold so it was like that was kind of just the beginning of things it was like oh people want this in their home (laughs) or you know yeah but i really thought about work quite differently then like i thought about like a painting is an object that you you know make and that someone buys it was real very basic understanding of art (laughs) which completely changed then when i went to art college you know i remember my tutor kept on telling me to stop thinking like a designer so a designer would have a finished painting or image or product in mind so stop jumping you know to the final results and just concentrate on the process and let go and experiment with materials and like push things further you know yeah so it was a huge lesson for me so yeah that's kind of how I got here so I left college kind of fascinated with expanded painting so basically painting just kind of outside the canvas or like installation I liked kind of thinking about how you could walk into a space and how you could dress the room with painting to kind of recreate this space to recreate a nice environment or like um contemplative environment kind of like replicating a church or something spiritual not that I'm making work that is like specifically spiritual or anything to do with religion but I was thinking more of installation and how the materials they began to really take on kind of like a semiotic base, you know? So it was just trying to recreate an experience, I suppose.
0: You mentioned your husband, Kean, is a graffiti artist, but then he's also a sound artist. Yeah. So was he already doing that when you met him and was it meeting him that kind of brought you into experimenting with sound as well
1: well we met quite young actually so he wasn't even like he would play guitar and that kind of thing but he worked in our records this record store so he's like an encyclopedia of music (laughs) but he started experimenting with modular synths and I have this relationship with music that You know, I play it when I make work and it makes me feel things that visual art can't. Like, it's really emotive. I find I get really emotional when I'm listening to music. Like, some tracks will make me cry, like, bring me to tears. Whereas the only painting that has ever kind of brought me to tears is this one painting by Peter Doig. In the Walker Gallery in Liverpool, when I saw that, it brought me to tears. But that's the only visual work that is ever kind of... I do get emotional, you know, when I see great work, but this literally brought me to tears. So I feel like with sound, I needed to bring that element to the visual to create this kind of ethereal atmospheric base you know it becomes way more immersive when you add a sound element to a visual element you know um, next I'll be experimenting with maybe smell or something I had a show one time in Dublin in this place called the complex and it's they had an old building that was beside like a fruit market and you could smell the fruit in the place. And I remember hearing one person leave my exhibition go, she caught of the smell as well. Like, could you smell the strawberries in there? <laughs> yeah, so I was thinking that's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, so maybe I should bring that to, I don't know. But yeah, I also love, you know, video as well. I've only started doing video in the past couple of years. Now, I'm very low-fi, low-tech. I film things on my phone, and I'll get keen to like help me with the sound. And but for our show that we did together in uh, liminal gallery, I got keen and Brian Robson to do the sound for the opening night, which I thought was cool. So
0: it was magical.
1: Thanks. So I recorded sounds for that piece in the Tyrone Guthrie Centre where I did a residency in Monaghan. So it's this stately home and it's there's like cottages that artists can stay but you can also stay in the house and it's, you get fed. <laughs> you get your dinner made for you which is amazing because you don't have to think of you know, what am I gonna have for dinner? I have to go to the <laughs> shop, I have to find a recipe, make the dinner. like it cuts all that out of your day and you just get this cool studio. um it just frees up your time and you can really concentrate in the work. So I did a lot of sound recording there. So there's a beautiful lake, which I recorded it. The sound of the lake kind of you know, lapping up against the boathouse. And then it was a heat wave at the time. It was September. And we had this week of really hot weather. And the sounds of the birds, it was insane. So I recorded some of that. And I also recorded studio sounds of me painting just like with a dry brush, you know. So the guys used all these... Samples, they gathered them all together and they kind of manipulated them and molded them through the synths and created this cool, like, soundscape for the space. It was real.
0: <laughs> it was. I think it made the whole space come alive.
1: Ah
0: because all of the exhibition is hung with floor to ceiling paintings that are just your patterns some of them are really quite frantic some of them are really loose some of them are really soft and so because of all of these patterns just surrounding you in this very tight space with these very static noises and then sometimes you hear the birds come through you hear scratching noises and just all of that combined it just made the whole space pulsate move it was an incredible experience
1: oh and for me it makes me think about the viewer being in my studio or something, you know. It's bringing elements of pre-show or like pre-presentation where the work is really quite raw in the studio. And just recording those sounds and bringing it into the gallery space for me felt like I was kind of sharing a bit more of an intimate process with the viewer you know that's how how I really felt about it and then I made these shirts for the guys to perform in <laughs> so I painted the shirts the same pattern as the wall hanging because I kind of felt like they should be almost melting into the paintings or like being camouflaged or being part of the work yeah, that's kind of how I was trying to think about it. And even the way the paintings were hung on the wall hangings. Originally I was gonna make these frames for them out of plaster, and I decided against it because in the studio I started just putting like blue tack behind the paintings and sticking them on and i thought it looked really cool and if they were in the frames i just kind of felt like again it was one step further from the studio you know just one one more step that was removed from the studio so i kind of wanted to just have it as raw as possible suppose yes that was my idea behind that presentation as well. And then there was the curtains. <laughs> I did a show a while ago called Pay No Attention to That Man Behind the Curtain. And we were really thinking it was a two-person show with Lucy Sheridan. You mentioned in the intro there. <laughs> so it was based around the return to Oz. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Not a lot of people have seen this movie. I love it. Oh my God. I'm obsessed oh. with it. Yes. Must have seen it so dark for a kid. yes it is because I remember the first time I saw it I was home sick from school I was like lying on the couch and this came on the telly and it was just blew me away like it's just so dark and so magical I've always been really drawn to like a darkness or like mystery fantasy but anyway the show was based on Return to Oz but The title of it was based on The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy arrives at the Emerald City and she finds that the wizard is no more than an old man (laughs) behind the curtain running the show. It says so much. (laughs) And we had these curtains in the space and it was a really nice way to kind of guide the viewer around the space, I feel. And as well, like, curtains are associated with so much. I know you said it reminded you of, like, curtains around the hospital bed. Doesn't it? So true. (laughs) I spent so long in the hospital just staring at those curtains for endometriosis. Yeah, shocking. But also, you know, it kind of conceals things. It reveals things, like, in a theatre... When you're waiting to see what's behind the curtain before the show starts. Yeah, there's this like anticipation with a curtain. I don't know what it is. I like keeping the daylight out at dawn and keeping privacy inside when it's dark outside. It's a real transient barrier. So I ended up putting more curtains in this show, but through holes in the hangings. Because then it almost alludes to another world behind or something behind it that's concealed.
0: Absolutely. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Richard Wilson. He had the room full of oil and originally it was at Saatchi Gallery in London when it used to be in County Hall. And it was this like beautiful, I think it might have been like a library and like this tiny little walkway that you just walk into that was like filled up to your up to your chest, pretty much, and the whole room was filled with oil. And there was this little kind of metal cutout where you could walk the walkway just for one person to go in through at a time. And the oil is just like so slick and shiny, and you know, reflecting everything. It's like beautiful, it's horrible substance, but it's so beautiful. But then there was a door ajar and it looked as though the oil was then going into that next room. And it's the suggestion of continuing a story past what you can see. And I think that the curtains do the same thing. They continue your story past the point that you can actually see and experience. Your imagination takes you onto to the next point and the next point. Yeah, I love that in an artwork as well. This kind of continuation.
1: Yeah, I love that. A curtain definitely does that.
0: There was one thing that I just wanted to pick out from what you said, and that was about the auction. So you didn't understand how the art world works. Mm -hmm. So you thought, I'm going to call up an auction (laughs) house and ask them if they want to auction my paintings. Is that what you did?
1: I did. (laughs) Did you?
0: Yeah. (laughs) I just had to pick that out because I thought, Do you mean that you were going to work there, or? but then you said that they sold your works. (laughs) I thought, that's amazing that they were just like, yeah, go on then, we'll sell your artworks.
1: Yeah, she said, come on in and we'll have a chat and bring in some work. Brought them in, sat down with her. She said, are you sure you want to do this? Because, you know, you're only beginning if they don't sell or whatever, like it's quite public. I don't know I just didn't understand at the time but I was like yeah (laughs) let's do it
0: I love that you did that and that they sold how amazing is that yeah it's incredible
1: it really kind of gave me this confidence that like someone would want it or liked it even because when I came back from Canada I kind of moved back into my parents house and said to myself I'm going to be an artist. <laughs> That's the weirdest thing to say to yourself. Or even, even that moment when you call yourself an artist. Or if it took a long time for me to say, if someone asks, well, what do you do? I'll say, I'm an artist. But that took a really long time, you know, because I, I never really knew what an artist did. So how could I call myself an artist when I just... Yeah I don't know I was a bit clueless but you learn these things along the way you know I'm still learning.
0: <laughs> but then I think that when you do something that is creative and you have to work so many jobs that you don't necessarily want to do or are interested in doing so that you can fund the thing that you love it then becomes really hard to say this is what I do even for me working in galleries and I started off as an intern and slowly worked my way up and to be able to then say that I'm the director of a gallery you know that I have my own gallery that I'm a gallerist and it's like it just it took such a long time to get there so yeah I can totally understand that it would be the same for being an artist because you know I had to work loads of jobs to fund the thing that I love doing even when it was like just putting on shows doing pop-ups and stuff it took very really long time to be able to actually work in that field and say that's what I am so it's the same for artists isn't it
1: yeah but everything that we go through it adds to your what did you say it adds to your bow <laughs> you know like like for me as well I remember I set up after school art classes with my sister and it was it was really great because it it gave me a chance to make art firstly teach kids which I love doing to experiment with materials and it really really added to my practice like I feel like those years of teaching really kind of made me change my work my work became more playful. The materials I used were more crafty, less precious. I started becoming more open to different processes and that had a major impact on my work, yeah.
0: (laughs) You often work in collaboration with artists to create soundscapes for video works and for installations. I mean, we were talking about them earlier, but... We never said their actual practicing name, Bosca Newer.
1: Oh, yes,
0: yes. <laughs> so I think it's important to mention that because we do definitely need to give them credit because they did such a good job, both for this show that we have on at the moment and your online solo show, which we had last year. Yeah,
1: I think it was last year,
0: wasn't it? 2022.
1: Yes. Yeah, that was amazing. Thanks for asking me to do that. <laughs> a pleasure. Because it was during COVID as well.
0: Yeah, that's true. It was, Yeah. But you went above and beyond what I was expecting because you made that amazing video work with Bosco Nua, where they were sat in your installation and they had one of your sculptures in between them and they were responding oh, yeah. to the sculpture, fully dressed in your ceremonial yeah. gowns almost, like all painted, almost a, they became the installation themselves and
1: they really were and then you
0: did the most amazing video work so taking the sound recording and then mutating it and playing with it and it was just amazing
1: it was my first time using after effects which I was trying to get my head around so we recorded that in my studio I had a studio at the time in Temple Bar uh, Gallery Studios they're in the centre of Dublin they're in a real like tourist in Dublin like right beside the Liffey but I luckily had a studio at the back of the building which was nice and quiet so we could do that same piece without any interruptions and we recorded it and then I began editing and learning After Effects with that video and then I animated on top of it just like little drawings yeah so hopefully that'll be the beginning of of a few more videos i'd like to do it was great to get that opportunity to work on that because covid was such a strange time you know and at that time as well i was making such physical work and i was really just healing from the operations So I had the operations for endometriosis just pre-COVID. And so I know it was a really, really tough time for people, COVID. But when life was cancelled a bit, I felt like I could finally heal, you know. And my work really changed because of it. And I started just being really more free with the work and experimenting more. And just being more open, I think, to like process. And because my studio was really big, this new studio that I got, it just kind of encouraged me to make larger work. The whole place was just covered in installation. You could hardly get in the door. And it was pretty nuts. But yeah, that was a, that was a nice show that we did. <laughs>
0: And I read that collaborations for you and the making of physical environments is an answer to the translation of restorative experience into sound, space and form. And I really love that idea of translating a restorative experience. So what does that mean to you and how do you express it through your works and collaborations?
1: I, yeah, when you say restorative, for me, it making art restores a sense of self and I think it's gotten to the stage where it has really wrapped around my identity you know like being an artist is really it's become my identity and I don't know if that's like I've spoken to different people about this one person said that that's a bad thing (laughs) and that you need to get a hobby (laughs) but my hobby is art (laughs) like I drink sleep breathe art I work in a museum as well I make it I suppose for me I always wanted to be a mother and it never happened for me and I always kind of saw my future as like being a mother maybe being an artist or maybe not as intense as i'm doing it now <laughs> um i think maybe like i drew myself into my work and that's why it's restorative for me because as you know endometriosis can just cause infertility it takes on average like 7 years or something to diagnose endo for me it took around that that time and we myself and my husband were trying to conceive for a long time nothing was happening and then they can't diagnose it until they go in to operate um so when they did go in to operate they unfortunately left me with internal bleeding and so I was like rushed back into the hospital then and then they had to take out all my organs I was really infected inside so they had to take everything out and wash it so it was like a major thing yeah it just really set me back and then afterwards like the reason I went in to get the operation was because well firstly I had cysts so they were going to get rid of them but then when they got in they didn't realize that the endo was that bad so They vaporized it and they obviously nicked the blood vessel or whatever. So afterwards, they said that I was too damaged to conceive. So after that, I think my coping mechanism was, let's throw yourself into your work, throw yourself into your art. And I know my work isn't very literally about infertility or by looking at it you wouldn't necessarily think that's what it's about but um I suppose my work is everything that I am thinking about you know after I found out I couldn't have children you go okay well you're not going to be a mother and I come from a really traditional kind of Catholic family where like the Virgin Mary is this like highest role model of like purity and like femininity and like if you are not motherly or cannot be a mother or your body won't do what it's supposed to do as a woman like what am I what's my role you know what's my role in a family what's my role in society I just kind of had to rethink things rejig things in my brain you know and I did and I feel now I've gotten to a place where I'm really happy (laughs) you know I'm happy with my life I'm happy where I am I'm really in a rhythm with my work
0: that is amazing like what a horrific thing for you to have to deal with because endometriosis is horrible anyway but for such a trauma to happen while you're having the diagnostic operation is just that's ridiculous but amazing that you have come out the other side and thrown yourself into something which means so much to you that is incredible so thank you for sharing that story because I had no idea
1: but you know I don't think people talk about it well that much and like I know women can get pretty desperate you know when you're trying to conceive and nothing is happening. Like you should have seen my Google searches. <laughs> they were like, I am spotting after, you know, like I'm bleeding after this day. Is it ovulation spotting, or is it like all this? Like my Google searches are just insane. I was getting a wee bit obsessed <laughs> about about this. And I think that's what happens. I'm talking to you a lot of my peers you know and it's a phase in people's lives
0: yeah exactly and I think that's why I wanted to explain what endometriosis was at the beginning of this when I was doing the intro because when I got it literally the only time that I'd ever heard it mentioned was Lena Dunham the director and actress she has it and she's the only person that I have ever heard mention it And I had no idea what it was when I, they basically thought that I had cancer because a scan had shown a growth and it was endometriosis in the end, but I had to go through all these tests and things because they thought it was cancer. And then when a doctor said to me, it could be endometriosis and i was just like immediately like oh my god that just means that you're infertile you just don't hear about it enough to know what it actually means and the complications and stuff and the fact that there's no easy cure it's just a bit scary isn't it if it happened to the majority of the population then there'd probably be a lot more research into it and it's such an unknown thing people are like oh well, you know if you want to cure it then have a hysterectomy <laughs> it's like that is not a solution
1: and also you know everyone's experience of endometriosis is different as well so they a bit of a, a mindful
0: <laughs> it is it is and I think that it's good to talk about these things and to raise a bit of awareness even if it is on a art podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> we cover all topics <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think that you mentioned earlier that you were on a residency at the Tyrone Guthrie Centre in Monaghan. Yes. And so you created the artworks for your show at Liminal Gallery, Swallowing Miss to Lick Your Mouth, while you were there on the residency, and it is a visceral and emotional response to the land. So tell me, how did the title for the exhibition come about? Because... Obviously, I love it. And obviously, on the opening night, it was incredibly fitting because we had that freezing
1: fog. It was incredible. We couldn't have timed it any better. Yeah, that was crazy, the, the night of the opening, how thick that freezing fog was. Yeah, so the title, Swallowing Mist to Lick Your Mouth. So it's actually like, it's kind of an embarrassing title. <laughs> so... When I was away on residency, I was kind of thinking about Keen, because I was away. Just thinking about being a woman, you know, everything. So I would go on these walks in the morning down by the lake. And because there was the heat wave, for some reason, maybe the dew from the night, I don't know, on the land, when the heat would come in the morning at dawn you would get this incredible mist. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was really, really thick by the lake and you could see the sun coming up. It was beautiful. So I would go on this walk early in the morning and I would <laughs> ring Keen and wake him up. <laughs> and I'd be, like, pretending to kiss him on the phone, like, you know, <laughs> making faces, like... <laughs> So, swallowing the Mist was, like, you know, inhaling this mist. And then To Lick Your Mouth was kind of me pretending to, like, lick, <laughs> lick his mouth on the front. <laughs> yeah, pretty literal. <laughs> pretty literal title. Yeah, I suppose, you know, even the titles from that show, I'm just looking at the works here and now, actually, Um. They're all like separate works, as in they're not under an umbrella of like one set theme. It's everything that I was thinking about on that residency and they just kind of manifested. (laughs) Like, I think one question you were asking me was about the titles of the paintings as well. Yes, like sometimes I would take them from a lot of music Only recently I've been trying to write bits of poetry and I'm not, I don't know how to write poetry, (laughs) but I'm kind of trying because I've been on this residency twice. So on the residency, right, the guy who owned the house, his name is Tyrone Guthrie. So that's why it's called the Tyrone Guthrie Centre. And he was a playwright. And he used to have big parties in this house. So he was always hosting artists, musicians, poets, writers. So after his death, he wanted this tradition to continue. So that this is why he has given the house to the state and they run this residency. And so one of the uh, rules is you have to show up in the kitchen, this big long table with 12 other artists that you don't know. So you meet them for breakfast at nine o'clock, you meet them for lunch at one o'clock and dinner at seven o'clock. And so the first time I was there, I was the only visual artist. So I got to sit in the middle of poets and writers. There was one woman who was like a crime writer. Yeah, it was brilliant. So. I got to hear all the writers and poets talk about their work. It was so interesting because I'm just used to visual artists chatting about their work. But it was really nice to hear this. So I was kind of thinking about this a lot. And one of my paintings in our show in Liminal Gallery was called, (laughs) it's kind of a long-winded title, but it depicts a writer. (laughs) And it's called Talking About How Writers Write About What They Talk About. (laughs) Because there was this one lovely woman who was terrified of dogs. And she would go for her walks in the morning as well around the lake, like all of us. And this one morning, she was walking past the lake. And there's a farmer in the next kind of estate over And he brings his dogs for a walk in this estate because it's open to the public. They can walk around it. And so he brought all his dogs and he let them off the leash. And they came bounding like down the hill after her. And she's petrified of dogs. So at the end of the residency, we all like gathered in the lounge area. It's like a big room with a grand piano and like an old fireplace and loads of books on shelves and really high ceilings a beautiful estate and she read this amazing poem that she wrote about this experience of the dogs running after her and it was just incredible how she just encapsulated the feeling that she had the fear that she had and how writers can really express that and I really admire that So I'm trying to give it a go. (laughs) I'm trying to express myself with words. And so I really tried with the titles for this show to kind of not just nick them off as something that resonated with me, but to try and think of words that kind of sound lyrical, but mean something to me.
0: And with the titles, are you trying to guide the audience or steer them away?
1: Oh, yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I actually never think about it, really. Like, it was funny because on the opening night at Liminal, there was this woman who asked about one of the paintings. And she was really reading into the painting. You know, she could feel like that there was pain in the painting. The figure is really, like, bent over. And this hump of hair in one of the hands. And it was really lovely hearing what she was taking from the painting. I like leaving the titles kind of open-ended. No, they're not very specific. Because I do want people to kind of bring their own memories and their own experiences and their own life to things. You know, everyone reads visual images differently, which is the best thing about painting, right? That it's like open. Yeah, so I don't want to steer people directly to something very specific. Just leave it a little bit open, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think that the title really has the ability to set a particular mood, whether it's like the right move or it's a red herring. And one of my worst pet peeves is when people leave works as Untitled. I just think, what a waste. A waste of creativity.
1: It's so lazy.
0: <laughs> it's like you were saying about this idea of extended painting, and I really like that as a concept because the painting does extend past its limitations. You have to think about the placement, what color it's sat on, how you title it, the smell of the room. Everything is going to affect the way you read that work because if you see it in a different place, think about like yeah. really iconic works you've seen in several different exhibitions. Depending on where you see it, it changes the mood. If you're looking at a work and there's an alarm in front of it and you're constantly leaning forward to get a closer look and you're setting off the alarm, that's going to leave you with one experience as opposed to seeing it with freer security protocols. All of those things, it's all going to affect like your reading of the work. And so I think a title is the very least that you can do.
1: Actually, there was one artist... So on the same trip to Liverpool, when I went to the Walker Gallery and I like cried in front of the Peter Doig painting, there was also this amazing show on by this artist. He's an English artist, Benedict Drew. I think he might live in Margate. I'm not too sure. Anyway, <laughs> it was amazing, this show. So you walked into this room and it was really, really dark. And he had this like glow-in-the-dark silly string and he had video he had amazing sound he had images it was so immersive it was like I'd never seen or experienced anything like it everything was considered you know all the senses were considered and I think that really really inspired me to be more considerate of the viewer.
0: I've had many people saying it's like walking into your, I was going to say your mind, but then it's like so pink and fleshy that it's more like walking into your body. There's something so cosy about it, like these kind of (laughs) fleshy, pinky, purpley walls. It's perfect for a winter exhibition, I have to say.
1: (laughs) It was quite Christmassy or something, wasn't it? It was actually a really nice challenge to make something for that space because it's such a unique space. Firstly, the size. I've never seen anything like it. You really have to think about the space in a different way because the ceilings are so high as well. They're quite deceiving. And then you've got the added bonus of the window. The window. I was like, how can I make this window like a theatre or something? Like a good looking glass that you can view in it's unique from the outside as it is on the inside as someone walking past will see also an exhibition and also if you go inside it's a different exhibition it's also that idea of it expanding further and it's going behind the curtain or behind the door or it's like this little other portal <laughs> You know, because I was wondering where would I even fit the sculptures in the space? So I wanted them in the window, but I didn't know how. And I tend to make everything modular so that when I bring it to the space, the space dictates where things will go. I had it in my head, the general idea of how I would hang the work, but it changed when I got into the space. You know, The, the window specifically changed.
0: And there's also extra works which you brought, which you didn't put up. Did you expect to put up all the works?
1: You know, I wasn't too sure. I usually bring a little bit extra. (laughs) Just, I bring everything and then I can edit, you know. I like that, just according to the space.
0: Well, you came a long way. It's not as if you could just nip home and quickly pick up a
1: painting. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'll be back in three days. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs>
0: i find your paintings in particular have such a sense of familiarity about them i know them and i know their language as we have all seen them hundreds of times art historical and biblical scenes depict the catholic faith but your figures are blurred shaken by something maybe life or experiences the perfection of these familiar scenes smeared away is there a particular image or scene which you were drawn to and have you revisited iconic images? Because I know that in my intro, I said that you're quite inspired by the Catholic faith. But then you said that you weren't necessarily. So now I'm really intrigued. Oh,
1: well, when I say I am not necessarily, I mean, I lost my faith a long time ago, but I was Dragged up in the in the Catholic faith, yeah. So my family are still quite religious, and you know they take comfort in it. And my sister actually runs a seminary; uh, and she's the dean of the seminary, so she's she bosses around all the priests, <laughs> and she's a theologian. So I have great discussions with her about the faith, and I'm really interested in reading, um, specifically about. Virgin Mary, the cult of the Virgin Mary, how she appears as, you know, an icon for Catholic women. So I've been really like delving into that. There was one book that I was reading recently and it's called Alone of All Her Sex, the cult of the Virgin Mary. And it kind of looks at how women are seen in society now after years of goddesses, the Virgin Mary, these kind of.
0: Like these impossible figures that we are yeah. weighed up against that we would never achieve in a million years because yeah, we are that human. Totally.
1: <laughs> and also, how the Virgin Mary was just seen as so divine, you know? It's really like that she conceived without sin. So you must be virtuous to be a good female. It's like this kind of slut shaming thing. That is always around and still is around. Yeah. So I like reading or just kind of investigating that and where it comes from through my eyes, because I was informed of the world through these eyes of a Catholic and how I should be as a female. Yeah. But my sister and my mother are iconographers. So they would paint icons and it's a, it's a real like, beautiful ritual they pray between each layer it's a very slow process they mix their paint with pigments distilled water and egg there's lots of symbolism it's really beautiful I miss that comfort of faith (laughs) you know I don't believe in it now and I don't agree with the church so I'm removed from that but it's still ingrained in my kind of cultural memory so it definitely feeds into my work and especially with this religious art that I've grown up with especially the icons that my sister and my mom used to paint you keep them or you give them as gifts or you can give them to the church but you can't sell them because they're seen as something votive or They're quite sacred, so there's no monetary value, you know. So I've been interested in a lot of Renaissance religious painting. I really like paintings that depict the Virgin Mary, like the assumption where when she dies, she's collected by the angels and the saints that escort her to heaven because she's so virtuous and so divine. That her body doesn't decay. So she actually ascends into heaven as a person. Yeah, but it's just funny how she's such an amazing figure, but at the same time, women, it's just a double edged sword. You know, you have Eve who caused the fall of man because of her sin, and then you've got the Virgin Mary who's this virgin on a pedestal. It's just these. Crazy dynamics going on, which I'm really interested in.
0: That is very true. I hadn't really thought about comparing the
1: two of them in that way. But as well, you know, like a woman, she's virtuous or she's a slut. Like it's kind of, it's that kind of complex, you know.
0: (laughs) Have you read Women in the Picture by Catherine McCormack? No. I think you'd like it. It's a really good book because it looks at women. Throughout art history and throughout history, but it goes from the Rokeby Venus that the first depiction of a woman in art, sailors used to travel from all over to see her and they would masturbate Whoa. in front of her <laughs> because she was just like so beautiful, so desirable. And then it goes all the way through Greek goddesses being born from men's testicles, men being given the right of birth to birth these goddesses. And then it goes all the way to like witches. It's such an interesting book. I think you would really, really like it. It really opened my eyes to a lot of things that you just kind of take for granted. You just kind of don't really think about because... No one ever really puts it on a plate for you like that, like you just did with Eve and Virgin Mary. These two absolute opposing sides, which you don't really put There's no
1: in-between, Louise. There is no
0: (laughs) in-between. No, No, exactly (laughs) that. Your art historical references are brought into a contemporary context where the colours, backgrounds, the use of texture, patterns, glitter and painterly style take over the subject. They wrap themselves around them as if smothering them into submission. This push and pull across the image is a feast for the eyes and takes you on a journey if you're willing to take notice for long enough. How important is this to your practice and are you interested in the journey of the eye across the work? I
1: love that description (laughs) of the work, great. And you covered everything. Yeah, (laughs) color, color is a massive thing for me especially lately. During COVID I was thinking about colour and how I needed to go back to basics so I bought books and I like painted colour wheels and really just did a lot of experimenting and then I started teaching in the National College of Art in Dublin um, last year and this semester and teaching colour theory you really need to refresh it and I had them doing these like quick paintings doing monochrome paintings or using two colours or using one colour and I was thinking to myself why am I doing this in the studio like these are amazing lessons so I started doing these exercises in the studio and I think it's having a positive effect on everything else you know like composition and shape and texture one thing kind of leads to another you know with the texture I was listening to this I don't know if you know that artist Mike Kelly I don't know when he died but um he designed you know the Sonic Youth album cover with the like teddies on them I don't know if you know them So Mike Kelly, I watched an interview on YouTube and he said that to get inspiration, he returned back to his childhood drawings. And I was thinking about this and it's a real good method to unlearn things, which is really important as well. Because if you keep striving to perfect, perfect, to perfect, you well, I get really my painting gets really stiff and like you get hung up on things to look real or to have depth I was getting way too hung up on technique for such a long time so when I heard him talk about unlearning I was like such a good idea so I went to my parents house and did the same I went through some childhood drawings that I had and I found this one drawing and it was amazing (laughs) I must have been about seven and it was a crayon a drawing. And then it was painted over with like a watercolor or a gouache. So it was like wax, the wax was resisting the gouache. And so it had this beautiful texture. They so brought this home and I said, right, this is the beginning of all my new paintings. I'm gonna paint on paper. I'm not gonna paint on board anymore. I'm not gonna paint on canvas anymore. I bought a load of crayons, oil pastels, did loads of drawings, did gouache washes and so from that point this is the beginning of all these paintings and then I kind of layer on top with the oils. So it's actually quite an unforgiving process because you don't want to get rid of these beautiful textures that are really quite raw on the paper not like you can put oil over it and wipe it off it stains it immediately so it's very unforgiving so I try and keep like areas of texture that I created from the wax resist and then I try and paint around it and sometimes it fails (laughs) and I've lost it forever but then sometimes it just really works you know just so magical when it works and I get in such Bad form when <laughs> it doesn't work. It completely like changes my mood. Terrible. I don't know if that happens to other artists, but like I can get into such a funk. I think Keen knows like when I come home from the studio whether it's gone well or not, you know. <laughs> and with the glitter, I remember I started the glitter because I was trying to think about. How do I recreate the gold that is around saints' heads in icons? How can I, like, make it kind of more playful and, like, less sacred, but at the same time have it quite kind of showy? And I guess these saints had gold in their halos, and they were presented in the church beside candles when there was no electricity. And so the candles would flicker. And so it kind of animated the saints. So when you were praying to them, it was like they were alive and you could feel like your prayers are being answered or someone was listening or they were moving almost with the reflection of the gold. So I was kind of thinking, how can I kind of recreate that? It's like, the painting is activated by a person moving around it because the glitter, it shines. But this glitter that I get, I get it from America and the delivery cost is insane. It's like 10 times more than the actual glitter because there's like holographic bits in it. And they do a paint as well that I also use where it's like a chameleon effect. You know, you get those uh, guys who like paint their cars, they soup up their cars and they paint it like a chameleon colour, like it'll be purple that'll turn green when you walk around it. So they sell all this paint as well. You put down a black surface and then you paint this dust, you mix it with a medium, like a gloss, or you can mix it with just a transparent glue and you put it on and it it's so cool. <laughs> I love I love the effect. You know I taught kids for years. Like <laughs> These little things that you pick up.
0: <laughs> Why do you get this special stuff from America? You can't find it
1: anywhere else. No, I couldn't find it. Well, I ordered some from Japan. I ordered some from the UK. But they just weren't the same. They just didn't have that same reaction when you mixed it.
0: It's so interesting you say that because I used to work for a screen print studio, and the biggest secret in the whole studio was where we sourced diamond dust, (laughs) (laughs) which is basically just cut glass which you stick onto like paper. But because it's like they're tiny little pieces of glass and they're cut in a particular way so that it reflects the light, so it is like this layer of sparkle
1: beautiful
0: and you can get it in different grades so like different fineness and if you go to any print studio and you say where do you source your diamond dust and they just won't tell you it's like this massive secret but it was somewhere in Germany and apparently it's a cosmetics company and they do glitters and all of these but oh my god I just told the biggest secret but I didn't say exactly that anyway maybe have a look in germany
1: <laughs> uh, i'll be googling a german uh, yeah,
0: exactly
1: uh, glitter companies.
0: but yeah i love the fact that you use glitter because you don't see enough artists using glitter one you don't see enough artists using glitter successfully two <laughs> And I think that you got it, you know, like it just brings me so much joy. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And I do feel that your technique, it definitely feels like you've got a lot looser, like looking at your older works to where you are now it's amazing to see like that looseness that you've really lent into more of a emotive maybe intuitive response rather than getting
1: mm.
0: into that nitty gritty fine detail you've like lent into that side of it more which just you know excites me a lot more
1: yeah if you get too hung up on technique you just get completely bogged down and I remember before these works I was making very realistic looking models of heads like they were oil paintings of these sculptures and I was getting really hung up on like painting a shine you know or something making it look reflective and I get quite bored easily so as soon as I start to kind of think that I have a handle on it I was getting so bored because nothing being made on the fly it was a very step-by-step process to make something look like something whereas with these paintings I have no idea what it's going to look like when it's finished or what the composition is going to be it's really decisions on the fly like I have a general drawing that I do but it usually ends up completely different, which I love because I get so bored so easily. So it's, it suits me, you know, well.
0: <laughs> and you know, that it's amazing that you found that artwork, your seven-year-old self's artwork. Also amazing your parents kept it, yeah. good on them. <laughs> but amazing that you found that and then that ignited this whole new body of work. And is that how you're still working? Are you still working in that same way
1: yeah yeah that's the beginning of every painting yeah but no it is great well done to my parents for keeping (laughs) keeping our artworks but see my mom was my play school teacher no we used to have like a basement in the house that I grew up in and it was called Daisy Hill play school and she would do my hair and put my coat on and put my bag on And put my lunch in my bag and send me down the stairs. (laughs) And then I would hang up my coat, (laughs) hang up my bag, (laughs) just to be like all the other kids, you know. There was a, a great art cupboard there in the basement. So, you know, after play school, she'd like set me up. She'd put newspaper on the table. Here's a few sheets and here's the paint. Just go for it. So I think she kind of started me off.
0: <laughs> what a way to get someone into painting.
1: Yeah, true. So the
0: questions that I ask everyone, what do you enjoy the most about your practice?
1: So probably just closing the door of my studio, being by myself and getting to just play. I think that's what I enjoy the most. Just making. I just get lost. It's so good for mental health. It's so important for everybody to take time to do something that they enjoy, do something that fuels them, gives them a sense of peace and so they can switch off from the world. It's just really important to give yourself that, even if it's an hour, you know.
0: That's a good answer and you know before I go into this next question there was something else that you said at the very beginning when you were talking about your residency and how they cooked for you so I just recently watched and I think it was an interview with Aretha Franklin and she was being interviewed and the guy asked her what's your biggest challenge and she said what to cook for dinner <laughs> and he was like you cook your own dinner she was like yes I do And it takes up all of my time trying to think of what I'm going to make, go to the shop, buy the ingredients. What do we all fancy? How amazing is that anyway? So you're in good company with that comment. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you find the most frustrating about your practice?
1: Probably trying to figure out when a painting is done. It's probably the most frustrating thing. I'm meant to stop. Yeah, it's a big thing. But sometimes, if you don't know, if you live with it, it eventually, you know, if it's done or not. You'll figure out what to do next. But if you keep seeing it over and over again, I don't know, it kind of becomes finished or something. You can't think of anything else that will go on it. I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but yeah.
0: No, I don't think so. Do you have someone in a studio close by or, you know, someone that you kind of show it to or do you keep it very much to yourself until you know it's done?
1: I show Keen everything. Oh, do you?
0: Yeah,
1: I do. And like, he has a studio practice now too and we'll take photos and then as soon as he comes in, I'm like, how did it go? And I'll ask him, you know, do you have any photos? And he always will and the same, vice versa. And we'll ask each other questions about it and it's really really nice (laughs) to have that you know but you know I do have some friends we do studio visits which are really important and then gallerists yeah it's a good community there's a good community here uh, that I'm a part of which is really nice
0: that's really special being able to find your community no matter where you are Dublin is a city you know it's hard finding your people right yeah. any, in any city or in any town really it's that's a massive challenge but I think it's so important.
1: Mm, it seems like there's yeah like Margate has that real heart to it seems like there's a nice community there. Well Margate is
0: special. Lovely people I know. <laughs> oh I'm so glad I'm so glad you had such a great. good time because that was your first trip to Margate
1: right? Yeah great place I'll be back. I'll be back.
0: (laughs) Come back in the summer.
1: Yeah, Yeah, when there's not freezing fog.
0: (laughs) You've done your December stint and now you need to do your August stint and, you know, you'll see the two different sides to Margate because they're two very different sides, the winter side, the summer side. But both imagine, equally as yeah. beautiful and as wonderful
1: <laughs> really selling
0: our to you aren't I know.
1: you don't need to it's already sold <laughs> do you know what one
0: thing that I was going to ask you which I forgot you know you said that a painting brought you to tears and it was a peter doy do you remember the title of it
1: it was the blotter
0: I don't think I've ever cried in front of an artwork
1: really see I know do you cry listening to music definitely it just gets you, doesn't it? Like,
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, music makes me cry. Yeah. It stirs up all of these emotions. But yeah, I've never cried in front of an artwork.
1: You see, I did my thesis on, not on him specifically, but I brought elements of his painting under the umbrella of this team. So I kind of like studied him a fair bit. And then when I saw the painting in real life, it was like <laughs> epic.
0: Yeah I definitely get those moments where you're just like oh you got wrenching or you get like the goosebumps and you're just so excited to see something you know stirs things in you but definitely tears is never one that I've experienced in front of an artwork. Do
1: you know what it feels like? It feels like and I try to capture this in my work right so I feel like sometimes painting is like the presence of the artist as in There is this decision making is there. It's like painting is performative and you've got like all these brush strokes. It's almost like their signature. And when you're sitting and you're making a painting, you're thinking about what you what you're going to make for dinner that day. (laughs) You think about you know, a conversation that you had the, the day before or problem solving. You're thinking about all these things right? And it's Swirling around in your head and it's connected to your body. It's like the paint and the paintbrush is like an extension of that. It's an extension of you. And so when that is being exhibited in a gallery or a space, I feel like when I'm standing in front of, let's say, Peter Doig's painting, I'm like, wow, he made that decision. That hand, I can see that brush stroke that he did for the shadow it's like a decision you know it's like all these little decisions in one painting it's incredible really yeah that's kind of how I see painting it's alive that's so true
0: <laughs> I recently yeah. went to Istanbul as you know and I went to the modern art gallery there and there was a who was it Richter painting. That is the only time that I've ever thought that way, to look at an artwork and to be like, because it was such a monumental scale, it was absolutely ginormous. And like when you're up close with it, the paint is so thick and there's so many colours running through it. And it's just like this mess, (laughs) but really delicious mess because it's just like this thick, gorgeous paint, you know, like there's just so many oozy lovely textures on there but then you stand back and it was almost like a meadow and you could see the suggestion of poppies and these beautiful delicate flowers and blades of grass and so from afar it just looked dainty and beautiful and then you get up close and it's almost quite aggressive in the way that he's just like throwing this paint on and like moved it about and the way that it's kind of sitting on top of each other there's something quite aggressive and maybe a bit violent about it but then you stand back and it's like this tranquil peaceful thing and it's that real difference between the two
1: that push and pull that you're talking about yes exactly it has just such an agency about it Yeah.
0: But then at the same time, it's like, but how did he make that decision? To stand back and be like, I yeah. <laughs> had you have a paintbrush long enough to like reach? To be like, let <laughs> me just do a mark right there. And for it to make so much sense. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> so is there anything else you'd like to say about your current solo exhibition at Luminal Gallery, Swallowing Mist to Lick Your Mouth?
1: No, just um, it's on till the 31st and drop in. <laughs>
0: Exactly that. <laughs> well, Eleanor McCorhay, thank you so much for joining me today on the Liminal Gallery podcast. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you.
1: <laughs> and you too.
0: Thanks for having me. It's brilliant. Swallowing Mist to Lick Your Mouth, the first UK solo exhibition by Eleanor McCorhay, continues until the 31st of September in Liminal Gallery at 34 Fort Hill in Margate. We're open Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, 11 until 4 pm and outside of these times by appointment. More information can be found on our website www.liminal-gallery.com Thank you so much for listening to Liminal Gallery podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode featuring Mercedes Workman, who currently has a solo exhibition entitled Turner's Female Contemporaries, in the cupboard our second exhibition space dedicated to local thanet based artists bye for now